Thank you, Sherry, for that uh, prayer. And uh, once again, welcome to our church, and I pray that you will enjoy uh, the experience that you're having there at home. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to mention regarding this soft opening, this first phase of our opening, is if you would like to gather together in a home with 10 people or less and enjoy the service that way, that would be another wonderful way to reconnect with some of the people uh, in the body of Christ. So uh, again, all of those uh, different options are up to you, whatever your comfort level is. Uh, we believe that, uh, and I've been your pastor now for about four months, so I believe that you have, uh, you're uh, above average in intelligence. So you can figure this out for yourselves, so you know, how you want to do this. And then on July 12th, we'll mention, uh, we'll tell you what the next phase of our opening will be. Uh, will you just now please uh, join me for a, a prayer before the message? If you feel comfortable extending your hands as a sign of receptivity to the word. And so, Father, uh, here we are, uh, your children, once again. Uh, we are thankful that we have the opportunity to uh, meet even in this unusual fashion because we know that we are connected uh, by our hearts through your spirit. So, Father, my prayer this morning is that um, each of us would be open, our ears, our hearts, our minds, our souls to the word, and I pray that that word would do its work among us. Help us, Father, to receive it, to embrace it, and to live it out faithfully. Thank you, Father, that your word is everlasting. And we pray your blessing on our time together now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you know, uh, last week, uh, Jeremiah's 20-chapter sermon uh, was really a mandate to the people of Israel to turn away from idols and turn back to God. And we recognized uh, last week that Reformation is not enough. It has to be transformation. Uh, Reformation, uh, the church was rebuilt. They came to the church. They had all the slogans and the religious uh, things they could talk about. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. But there was much deeper issues than that. And Jeremiah addresses that uh, in his long sermon. Halfway through the sermon, uh, Jeremiah speaks some remarkable things that I want to share with you today. This is from chapter 10. And in chapter 10, uh, we find not only uh, Jeremiah teaching us, but really imploring us to recognize the king of creation, God. So I want to begin by reading uh, from chapter 10, verses 5 and 16. Like a scarecrow in a melon patch, their idols cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them. They can do no harm, nor can they do any good. He who is the portion of Jacob is not like these, for he is the maker of all things, including Israel, the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord Almighty is his name. Isn't that beautiful? Jeremiah talks about our idols as if they're scarecrows, you know, empty, nothing to them. And so here, um, Jeremiah is doing what we find a lot in uh, the Psalms uh, is kind of a polemic. Uh, he, he starts with a polemic and then finishes with a psalm. It's uh, kind of a duet, like there's two voices speaking in chapter 10 of Jeremiah, a polemic and a psalm. Derek Kinder, Kidner describes the duet as uh, this beautiful music. A polemic is an attack, an objection, 
a critique of something false. Jeremiah attacks false idols because they are quite simply absolutely worthless. They're scarecrows. A psalm, however, is a song of praise. Jeremiah contrasts the matchless God of the universe with this empty worthlessness of idols, a polemic and a psalm. In one of my former churches, I had a friend uh, by the name of Kenny. Um, Kenny was one of those um, young men as he was growing up that was favored in every way you could possibly imagine. Very smart, uh, an outstanding athlete, good-looking, charismatic, he had it all. Well, he bought into that lifestyle of idolatry. He became an idol himself. He was uh, all-conference at Florida Florida State University as a defensive back. Uh, He was homecoming king at his college. I mean, everything seemed to go his way. He was into fast times and fast women and all kinds of drugs and alcohol and everything that comes along with fame and fortune. I mean, he seemed to have it all. He had a tryout with a professional team, didn't make it, but he still had this golden lifestyle that everybody envied. Well, he got married, had a couple of kids, and as the money dwindled away and his fame and fortune was less and less an object of desire, he found that he was left with just his alcohol and just his drugs. Kenny's wife and two children used to come to our church by themselves. And I had met Kenny a couple of times and we had talked. We, had a, we loved talking about football and things like that. But then Kenny had a severe overdose. He almost died. I went to the hospital to visit with him and I'll never forget the look on his face. He said, everything that I put my trust in is gone. Everything that I thought mattered above everything else, except for my wife and children, everything that I put my confidence in is God, is gone. I have nothing. Well, it was a beautiful opportunity um, to just introduce Kenny to Jesus. And Kenny embraced the love of Jesus, his forgiveness, his grace. Uh, he got, went through a rehab program, got clean, and he became a much better father, a much better husband, and a man who had a purpose and a goal in life that was not just fleeting. Why is it that we put so much trust in scarecrows? Things that really have no substance. They have no life. Scarecrows are an illusion, fame, fortune, all of the things that we think we need. But how does the scarecrow compare to the matchless grace and the love of God? Can we agree that all of us have our scarecrows? We have those personal encounters. I know I have in my lifetime. It's been with pride, with gambling, with other things. One of the reformers, John Calvin, that we mentioned last Sunday, said it this way as he was commenting on the book of Jeremiah. Calvin writes, Let us learn how greatly our nature inclines toward idolatry rather than by charging the Jews with being guilty of common failing, it's easy, easy target, right? We, under vain enticements to sin, sleep the sleep of death. Every human being has this enormous capacity to sin. Every human being has this enormous capacity 
to find something that they think somehow will satisfy their soul, some kind of a scarecrow, and attach themselves to that. Calvin's words would say, he would say, in other words, before we rail against Judah, let's take the log out of our own eye. But this universal embracing of idolatry really begs the question, why is idol worship so attractive? Why are idols so attractive? Well, let me share a couple of thoughts. First, because everybody's doing it. Idolatry is supported by the weight of public opinion, even in Jeremiah's day. Jeremiah describes it in chapter 10, verse 2, as the way of nations, the pagans and the Israelites alike, They were all worshiping idols. Why? Well, there was some international peer pressure. In Babylon, the Babylonians were wealthy and successful and glamorous. I mean, they were the Hollywood of the 7th century B.C. They seemed to have it all together. Everybody wanted to be like the Babylonians. Uh, in, In chapter 10, verse 2, when it says, when the Babylonians read signs in the sky... The Israelites would run to check their horoscope, right? I mean, this was happening all the time. I love uh, the show, the television show. um, um, What is it I love? Oh, I know, The Voice, of course, The Voice. Uh, The Voice is one of my favorite shows. Part of that is because I love great music, and uh, I love the voices. I mean, they're all really good that come on that show. And I love the judges and all that stuff. Well, on The Voice this year, uh, one of the contestants was a pastor with eight children. Anybody see that? See that? A pastor with eight children. In fact, he ended up winning The Voice. Now, when I watch The Voice, I would say at least one out of every four, sometimes more, of the uh, contestants grew up in the church, grew up singing in the church. And they said, this is my first introduction to, you know, singing was at church. And, of course, he was one of those. And as it went on, you know, he kept building momentum and he showed their adorable eight kids and his wife and and it was just uh, remarkable. And I kept thinking to myself as weeks went on, is this going to really affect this guy negatively? Is he buying into something that uh, is not real, is a scarecrow, this fame and fortune? Now, I don't think he would. He seemed like a very sincere guy. But there's always the temptation that we step over that line and say, I have discovered something that will completely satisfy my soul. And that something is usually filled with straw. Following idols, everybody's doing it. The second reason we follow idols is because they're attractive. They're aesthetic. They're artistic. They're beautiful. They're bright and shiny. Idolatry is beautiful. Now, ancient idols were adorned with Precious metals overlaid silver and gold. And in chapter 10, verse 9, Jura reminds them that they were dressed in blue and purple, the colors of royalty. Now, before laughing at the Israelites for bowing, you know, bowing down to blocks of wood, feel the tug of idolatry in your own heart. Attractive idols in our age, oh, they are innumerable, right? The appeal of wealth. The satisfaction of controlling others, the allure of sexual pleasure, the comfort of being well-liked and loved, 
the exhilaration of getting to the top, whether it be grades or athletic pursuit or music or some other art, the relaxation of a luxury vacation, the security of a large bank account, palatial homes, the coolest cars, even the pursuit of good health. So the last few weeks, I've been going back to our gym. And uh, there's social distancing there, and you always clean off the machines before and after. So it's really a pretty, uh, pretty good atmosphere, and I've really enjoyed going back. My first day back, this was maybe three weeks ago, honey, uh, I went through my aerobics, and then I was doing the weights. And in, I think I was away from the gym about six weeks, six or seven weeks, uh, I was really struggling to get up the weights. I couldn't even do the weights I was doing before, so I lowered them down, etc. And after a few weights, I was sitting on a bench, and I was uh, kind of sitting down, and I had my hands like this, and I was just kind of going like this. <laughs> and, and I was just breathing heavily. And the guy next to me looked over. He said, ah, first day back, huh? Yeah, yeah, first day back. And this guy next to me was Adonis. He had biceps the size of my thighs, bronzed. You know, beautiful muscles. You know, I'm just the schlep in there trying to, you know, stay healthy, right? And this guy was incredible. And so we started talking. And uh, he said, well, what do, you, what do you do for a living? I said, well, I'm a pastor. He said, oh, so you're one of those God guys. And I said, yeah, I, that's, that's what I am. And he said, well, my God is my body. And I said, well, I can see that. <laughs> you know? I mean, he told me he puts in eight to ten hours a day on his body. He's in training. He goes to meets. You know, he does these, uh, uh, you know, Ironman, not Ironman things, but these weightlifting contests and these bodybuilding contests. He was just an incredible thing. But you know what? He was so true. He laughed when he said, my body is my God. He laughed, but it was absolutely true. We all have our idols in our day and age. A third century theologian from Africa by the name of Origen, wrote these words. What each one honors before all else, what before all things he admires and loves, this for him is God. Now these idols attract. They're beautiful. They seem good. But here's the message that God gives us through Jeremiah. Those idols are worthless. They are empty. The customs of the people, the wooden idols, they're worthless. They're nothing. They're empty. They're zeros. This is what he says in verses 3 and 4. For the customs of the peoples are worthless. For they cut a tree out of the forest, and a craftsman shapes it with his chisel. They adorn it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails, so it will not totter. So the prophet here gives a do-it-yourself kit about making a God. Now, this is before Wikipedia. Today, we just look up, how do I make a God, okay? We do that. So here's how you make an idol. First of all, choose a sturdy tree. Chop it down. Drag it to your workshop. Get out your hammer, your carving tools, your saws, and you shape it into a person or an animal or an object, and uh, you make it really nice. You smooth it out with sandpaper, and, uh, and, and, and it's just gorgeous. Now, when you do that, after you've done that, you, you, you wrap gold or silver around it and make it shine real bright and real beautiful. And voila, you have a God. And it's spectacular. 
Now, one more thing. Um, nail it down. Verse 4. Um, when it's elevated on a shelf, there's a good chance uh, your God will topple and break. Okay? Uh, there's something embarrassing about a wobbly God. I, let's just say that right up front, right? There's something very disconcerting about a deity who falls and lands on his face. Okay? Nail it down. Jeremiah is illustrating how ridiculous it is to worship idols. They were man-made. Things that we have come to believe will satisfy us, whether it's a person or an opportunity or a place or a thing, something we have as a human being decided, this is what I will need. This is what will bring me ultimate satisfaction and happiness. John Calvin, we talked about him last week, said this about our human nature. He said, our human nature is a perpetual factory of idols. Can you relate to that? Boy, I sure can. The problem is, man-made idols are impotent. They're powerless. They're unable to do anything. They are just like Jeremiah said, a scarecrow in the melon patch. How empty, how stupid, how vapid is a scarecrow? In fact, scarecrows don't even last very long. Even crows, as dumb as they are, figure out after a few times, this thing isn't real, and they move on to other things. Well, if we want to learn about scarecrows, you know where we're going with this. Let's take a look at this video clip from The Wizard of Oz. What would you do with a brain if you had one? Do? Why, if I had a brain, I could... I could while away the hours, conferring with the flowers, consulting with the rain. And my head, I'd be scratching while my thoughts were busy hatching if I only had a brain. I'd unravel every riddle for any individual in trouble or in pain. With the thoughts you'd be thinking you could be another Lincoln if you only had a brain. Oh, I will tell you why the ocean's near the shore. I could think of things I never thought before. And then I'd sit and think some more. I would not be just a nothing. My head all full of stuffing, my heart all full of pain. I would dance and be merry. Life would be a ding a dairy if I only had a brain. Why, if our scarecrow back in Kansas could do that, the crows would be scared to pieces. They would? Hmm. Where's Kansas? That's where I live. And I want to get back there so badly, I'm going all the way to Emerald City to get the Wizard of Oz to help me. You're going to see a wizard? Mm-hmm. Do you think if I went with you, this wizard would give me some brains? I couldn't say. But even if he didn't, you'd be no worse off than you are now. Yes, that's true. But maybe you better not. I've got a witch mad at me, and you might get into trouble. Witch? Huh. I'm not afraid of a witch. I'm not afraid of anything. Oh, dear. Except a lighted match. I don't blame you for that. But I'd face a whole box full of them for the chance of getting some brains. Look, I won't be any trouble because I don't need a thing. And I won't try to manage things because I can't think. Uh, won't you take me with you? Why, of course I will. 
Hooray! We're off! Well, I hope you enjoyed that. Um, the reason this scarecrow was such a sad sack is because he was a few bales short of a haystack. I think we'd all agree with that. He wistfully tells all the things he would do if he could think and say, if he only had a brain. My head I'd be a scratching while my thoughts were busy hatching if I only had a brain. False gods are like the scarecrow in the melon patch. They do not have any brains or anything else for that matter. Listen to verse 5 of chapter 10. Like a scarecrow in the melon patch, their idols cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them. They can do no harm, nor can they do any good. False gods cannot speak. They can't think. They can't walk. They can't do any harm. They can't do any good. They cannot save you from sin or death. They cannot satisfy the needs of your soul. They are empty, lifeless, void, completely void of substance. They're a scarecrow in the melon patch. Verse 14 of chapter 10. Everyone is senseless and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is shamed by his idols. His images are a fraud. This is Jeremiah's polemic against idolatry. Idols are man-made, they're impotent, they're false, they're worthless. There's something about that last phrase, they have no breath in them. See, the difference between a God and us is the breath of God. Human beings, when Adam and Eve were created, and ever since then, every human being has the breath of God in him. That's what makes us alive. That's what makes us different than any other created being. That's what makes us different from any other thing that we might tend to worship. The breath of God. These things, these idols, these scarecrows, they are dead and lifeless. Now, how about you and me? Can you identify your own idols? In order to do that, uh, this is part of a fearless moral inventory, and you can do this, and I, I commend you to this. Consider these questions when trying to figure out your own idols. The first question is this. What things take the place of God in my life? What things kind of push God to the side? The second question is, where do I find my significance and my confidence? Now, one of the jobs that I have that I take very seriously is to um, tell my wife who she is, who she is in Christ, who she is in my eyes, who she is in the eyes of God. Too many of us are looking at ourselves through someone else's eyes or perception. We need to look at ourselves through the eyes of God. Where do I find my significance? And confidence. And the third question you need to ask is this, and this will sound kind of weird, is what makes me really angry? Now, the reason that is an important question to ask when discovering your idols is anger usually erupts when a god gets knocked off the shelf. Well, what would the prophet say about our private idolatries, right? Do you mean to tell me, Jeremiah would say, that your worship of sports or rock stars or movie stars or wealth, you need to tell me that that really matters to you? Are you joking? 
I mean, the images on your TV screen are not even real. The characters in soap operas don't deserve your pity. When you pull the plug, they all vanish. Jeremiah might say something like this, probably not softly or gently, but probably with a loud voice. You worship your work? You must be out of your mind. Your career cannot give you lasting satisfaction. No one ever says at a retirement dinner or deathbed, I wish I had spent more time at the office. Really, Jeremiah would say? Politics? Power? Sex? Drugs? Alcohol? Are you kidding me? Those gods are all empty. Now, one of the most famous American icons of the 20th century was Marilyn Monroe. And she was one of the most gorgeous women that God ever put on this planet. Arthur Miller, who was, I think, her second or third husband, describes his marriage to Marilyn Monroe in his autobiography entitled Time Bends. Time Bends. He talks of her slow descent into dependence on barbiturates, depression, growing paranoia, and hostility. He was afraid for her life. After a doctor was swayed to give her another shot so she could rest, Marilyn finally fell asleep. As Miller watched her sleep, he was moved to later write, I found myself straining to imagine miracles. What if she were to wake and I were able to say, God loves you, darling. And she were able to believe it. How I wished I still had my religion and she hers. Because beneath the layers of hurt and addiction remained an awareness that God was the only one that could fill that void. God, the one and only. Only God can fill those empty places in our souls. The prophet Amos said that we're always looking for things that will satisfy us and those things are like like swallowing the dust of the desert because only Jesus can satisfy. Now there's another occasion where there was a showdown between man-made gods and the Lord God. And most of you know that if you've been around the Bible or around church, you know the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18. So here's Elijah, one man, one prophet, 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah, and they have a showdown. So uh, Elijah said, okay, bring two bulls over here. We'll build a fire pit here. You guys build a fire pit there. One prophet here, uh, 850 prophets over here. Okay, uh, you put your bull on, uh, on your, you know, build your fire, put your bull there, and, uh, and, then, and then ask your God to light the fire and sacrifice that bull. That seems like a reasonable request. I mean, come on, even second degree gods can do that. Even second class gods can do that. So come on, you guys do that. And so uh, they do it, and they start chanting and singing, and, and then Elijah gets kind of cocky, and he starts making fun of them. He said, well, uh, maybe you should shout a little bit louder. Or maybe, maybe, maybe your God, maybe Baal is deep in thought or busy and it actually says maybe he's in the toilet. Maybe he's traveling. Where's your God? And so nothing happened, nothing happened. And so it's time now for Jehovah, the Lord God, to reveal himself. So Elijah said, okay, on this I'll, I'll put the bull, and, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to keep pouring water over it. So I'm, I'm drenching all of the wood, I'm drenching the bull, And I mean, it'll be impossible, right, for that to light fire. 
And then he stands back and he says, Lord God, do your thing. Do your thing. And of course, it just explodes and just disintegrates in fire. Here's what Elijah said. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And then in verses um, 37 to 39, we read these words. Answer me, O Lord, answer me. So these people will know that you, O Lord, are God. And that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. False idols are ridiculous. And somehow, some way, we continually go back to that well where we think there is something that we will discover that will truly satisfy our souls. Jeremiah said it this way in verse 6. No one is like you, O Lord. You are great and your name is mighty and power. Now, the last half of this chapter, and we'll just tick through these quickly, but this is beautiful. That was the polemic. That was the problem. That was the objection. Listen, idols are worthless. They're filled with straw. They do no good. They are not alive. You have to carry them. You have to, you have to tack them down so they don't fall off. Idols are worthless. Now, I want you to compare those idols to the Almighty God, the Psalm. No one is like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is mighty in power. Whatever stronghold, whatever you have come to believe, whatever idol you possess, God is greater and mightier in power. This is the psalm. Verse 7, he is king of the nations. An idol can only be in one place at a time, but God says, I am king over all nations, even the nations of the world today. We said last week, sometimes we just use it as a phrase, as a slogan. You know, God bless America. You have to ask the question, why would God bless America? The question really is, we bless God. Our nation, our people, individuals, we need to bless God. Because why? He is the king of nations. Verse 10, he is the true God. Idols are false. They're witless. They're shams. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. God says there is only one way to him, and that is through Jesus Christ. There was a wonderful example of this in John chapter 18. So Jesus had been arrested. He was taken before. He was first of all met before the religious leaders they sent him over to Pilate, tried to get Pilate on board with, with, with killing him. And Pilate examined him. He talked to him. He couldn't figure out what was so wrong about this guy, Jesus. And then Jesus said something very telling to him. He said, well, Pilate, maybe, maybe you want to know the truth. Pilate said, what is the truth? And then here's the critical part. Before Pilate could hear Jesus' response, he turned and walked away. How many times do we do that? We're confronted with the truth. 
The truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The truth that Jesus is the only way. We're confronted with that. And somehow, because our idols are so intriguing, our scarecrows are so enamoring, there's something that we just have to have so badly, we turn away from the truth and we walk away. How about verse 10? He is the living God. (laughs) Scarecrows are dead. They're empty. They're filled with straw. Their heads are full of stuffing. They have no breath in them. They have not been breathed with the Holy Spirit. But God is the one who is alive. He is the living God. In my life and my ministry of 40 years, I have been absolutely privileged beyond, beyond words, privileged to be in the presence of literally hundreds of people who have said yes to Jesus who have passed from death to life, who have passed from darkness to light, and to see those people literally be spiritually resurrected reminds me that we serve a God who is alive and a God who wants us to be alive in him. Can these idols, can these scarecrows save you or forgive you or heal you or bring you back to life? No, but the Almighty God can. And then it says that He is the eternal King. The eternal King. Not only will He live forever, but we will live forever. Those of us who have said yes to Him. The Scripture tells us that God will never leave us or forsake us. Please receive that word. God said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Why on earth would you settle for a scarecrow when the ever-present, the way, the truth, and the life, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God who is near, the God who is alive, the God who offers you forgiveness and grace and an abundant life, why would you ever turn away from that God? Jeremiah said it this way. The last thing he said in verse 16, he is your portion. He is a perfect fit for you. That emptiness that only a God can fill in your life is a perfect fit for Jesus. A portion means a share or an allotment. He is that perfect allotment for you, the inheritance. You belong to him. He belongs to you. I want to close this message by reading to you once again from Jeremiah. I invite you, if you will, to Close your eyes wherever you are in your homes. Just uh, don't turn to this passage. I just want to read it so that you can hear it. Uh, I want to read this as uh, a benediction, as a washing over you, as the word that just really profoundly covers you. This is the word of God from Jeremiah chapter 10, beginning at verse 12. But God made the earth by his power. And he preserves it by his wisdom. With his own understanding, he stretched out the heavens. When he speaks in the thunder, the heavens roar with rain. He causes the clouds to rise over the earth. He sends the lightning with the rain and releases the wind from his storehouses. The whole human race is foolish and has no knowledge. The craftsmen are disgraced 
by the idols they make. For their carefully shaped works are a fraud. These idols have no breath or power. Idols are worthless. They are ridiculous lies. On the day of reckoning, they will all be destroyed. But the God of Israel is no idol. He is the creator of everything that exists. His own special possession, the Lord of heaven's armies, is his name. Father, we are blessed to be part of a God who created us with a heart for you. We are so blessed to be able to say yes to you. We are so blessed to know that you are the ever-present, the way, the truth, the life, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God who is near, the God who is alive and who offers forgiveness and grace and abundant life. He is our portion. Father, may we cast away empty idols. May we throw aside scarecrows that we have come to believe will satisfy us. And may we cling to the one true everlasting, eternal King and God of all creation, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for this truth. We pray your blessing on this word over all the ones who are hearing. In Jesus' name, amen.